banking has become less of a problem. Still not perfect, but less of a problem. I, I think the, the, the business costs and access to capital still are, though. Um, if I want to open a bakery today, I can go to my bank and get a loan. If I want to open a cannabis dispensary, I can't. Welcome to the NJ Criminal Podcast and part three in this series. You are part of uh, different committees and associations. Uh, just, just briefly, the New Jersey United for Marijuana Reform Steering Committee. Um, what is that? Can you describe that? So in 2014, 2015, um, myself, the uh, folks at the NAACP, ACLU, uh, a group now called Doctors for Cannabis Regulation that really wasn't formed anymore, a gentleman by Dr. Nathan, um, uh, the representative from the Municipal Prosecutors Association, by the way, was on the Republican side of the aisle, and a couple others, uh, so folks from law enforcement and some others, got together to really advocate for this. And it's an interesting experiment. And, and uh, you know, if you think about in the Wayback Machine in 2015, the, the cannabis legalization of cannabis in new jersey was polling in the 40s okay mm -hmm. the, the support was not there governor christie was in office and i friends with governor christie at the time i'm a democrat but he laughed at me he said this ain't ever happened pal mm -hmm. <laughs> and i said well we're not stopping he said have fun storming the castle he goes this is great for me he's like mm -hmm. we're not doing it so mm -hmm. but you, you kind of saw what you're up against this was done not by force we changed hearts and minds and we took arguments i mean we were in church basements uh, I, I remember going to the cherry hill library in some tiny little room with 15 people just to talk about this and a lot of people yelling and screaming at us at the time about how you know it was the devil's lettuce and we're, we're, we're killing children by doing it and you just take the issues one by one and the, the profound one they'll tell you is and it, i did a forum at a business event and a gentleman came up after very angry at me and I, I'm used to <laughs> in these settings sometimes. And we're, we're ruining America, and, and he's not going to be able to hire people anymore. And this is such a stupid idea. And this is why our economy and our state is going down the, the toilet. And I, I said to him I, I, two things. What do you do, right? What do you do with a 30-year-old person that sold dime bags when they were 18 to put food on their you know, table? And what do they do now? They need to go get a job and go work. Great. They can't. They have a criminal record, mm -hmm. right, for doing mm -hmm. something stupid a while ago, and they can't go. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't get a, co a college loan, and they can't come work for you at your company, right? Right, right. We've talked We're, about we, that that issue on on other episodes of uh, this podcast. So it's a huge issue, and, and that's about expungement, right? And mm -hmm. and boom, you've got them. You've got absolutely. We should do that, and and you're right. We shouldn't be arresting people for this anymore. Okay. That's step one. Now, the next thing was I asked him what he did for a living. This man ran a company that manufactured high-end plastic bags for tech companies. So when you open your cell phone and you get that bag full of goodies inside, mm -hmm. he made those things. So I said to him, do they have zippers on them? He goes, what do you mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we do all that kind of stuff. I said, have you ever thought about being a supplier to a cannabis company? Whole attitude change. No, well, I bet. How would we do that? And I go, well, you don't think the guys coming from Colorado are bringing their bags with them when they come. They're going to hire a local supplier. And if you're doing that now for tech companies, don't you think you've got the ability to, uh, you know, transfer those kind of ability? Mm -hmm. We had a new, we had a new convert, right? Mm -hmm. But you've got to take people as they come, because some folks are here for the racial social justice arguments, and the ACLU and the NAACP laid out phenomenal research and arguments to show that black and brown people were tagged four times 
as likely um, to be arrested than I would be, despite similar use, right, in, in terms mm -hmm. of cannabis. But but black and brown people were targeted, and incarcerated more, and it was disparate. And we talked about the fact that out of a fair having a fair industry would ensure that we were taking people out of the black market and bringing them in the sunshine. We had those conversations. We had them across a variety of different cultural lines. We took people as they come and we educated and we won 70 percent of the vote in 2020 by doing that. And in five short years, really, we're able to change people's hearts and minds on this topic by providing facts. Right. Facts. Uh, we, we, we took every issue as it came. There was a concern over increase in, in drug driving. Um, we showed that through research that in Colorado and Seattle and some other places, they had not seen an incredible bump. There was a, there was an initial bump in insurance costs, which frankly insurers that decided to bill a premium in, but there was an increase in crashes. There was, however, in Colorado, a huge increase in hospitalizations and ER visits at the initial stage of legalization. And that was because of a lack of education on edibles and dosing. And that's mm -hmm. actually been all changed through re regulatory work where you're required to do have proper dosage and education about people were eating too many edibles right. and, get, and feeling horrendous. And they thankfully weren't dying, but they wish they did. Um, and then right. were presenting at ERs. But that was a hiccup but we owned it we owned that issue we dealt with it and 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 you didn't hide it you didn't yell at people and call them racist for bringing it up you you, you addressed it and by the way the industry helped to fix it in colorado las vegas and other places yeah i do think one issue um that that needs to be discussed and i'm, I'm trying to uh have someone come on to talk about it is the issue of um being able to uh quantify uh, in, when you're when you're talking about the topic of impaired driving, and yeah. how that is going to be dealt with by, you know, both prosecutors. I'm a former prosecutor and defense attorneys, and and certainly we've got the State versus Olenowski case that's pending before the Supreme Court, which is they're challenging the um, drug recognition experts and the admissibility of all that. But I th I do think, and I and I have not done any real research on, in other states, but how they are. Um, is there a bright line cutoff? Um, are, are they, you know, is it basically going to be a matter of taking a blood draw and and quantifying the active metabolite? But I think that's going to be a little bit of an issue that's going to have to be fleshed out by law enforcement. I think, I mean, listen, the, the one thing I know, I, I told somebody, I had the pleasure of sitting in the uh, uh, municipal court in Evesham in, in, in South Jersey um, for a traffic violation. God I bless got, you. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a fun experiment, but I, I was uh, pleading down a, a moving violation. But I sat there, and the first ones they do are the, all the, you know, the the drug violations and 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 DUIs. And there were several uh, convictions for DUIs for driving under the influence of narcotics or drugs, and and several were from can from cannabis. So previously, and you, you refer to the Supreme Court case, and we're going to see where that ends up. We were using uh, drug recognition off uh, experts. Um, sometimes it's a field sobriety coupled with a blood draw. There was just an incident where I think there was a death mm. where a woman was charged, I think in Ocean County. And I just the, saw and that. Ultimate, yeah. yeah, it was a blood draw that I think I, I just read because I'm curious right now. But there's a whole nother issue outside the criminal component of just, you know, from a liability standpoint, we, we've seen with cops right now, right? The, uh, the attorney general put out a memo earlier this year 
um, which is very controversial. And PBA has come out. And Mayor Phillip in Jersey City has come out against it. Um, that would basically say that police are allowed to use adult use cannabis products. And there's another viewpoint, and particularly like in Jersey City, where you have to purchase your own weapon. You can't. The uh, ATF won't allow you to get a firearms purchaser license if you are using cannabis. You can either lie on your application or be truthful and then be denied. So there's still some kinks in this right now of trying to figure out what does impairment mean? Because from a liability standpoint, if you're on a job or if you're operating a motor vehicle, there's arbitrary standards. And, and Meg, the other interesting thing, this became an issue um, particularly around the, uh, the debates around Black Lives Matter and, um, and some of the racial social justice components of this movement, should we allow an arbitrary standard that would potentially allow police to target black and brown drivers, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're high. We had a DRE come and it's a subjective test. And, and I think that's part of what's going on with the Supreme Court decision too. But that, that is still a challenge right now that is an open-ended one. Right. Well, the the law does provide that the odor of marijuana is not reasonable articulable suspicion to stop or search, which was which was good that they added that. Um, but I I I think that it's also likely that if a law enforcement officer were to pull somebody over and smell um, the odor of burnt marijuana, they may also then. Um, argue that they believe that they were under the influence, which would then give them the ability to search a vehicle. That's a whole other issue. Um, but yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of these little tangential issues related to um, criminal aspects that I think will it'll be interesting to see how they kind of pan out over the next you know, year or so. One, uh, one thing, just real quick, we had as a component originally, although it was jettisoned in the final effort again you know remember the enactment of this bill took place post summer of black lives matter and in you know 2021 there was a discussion at one point about requiring um the presence of uh, burnt marijuana in a vehicle similar akin to an open open container um as a per se violation that was scrapped um, there, what remained in the bill, which was still very controversial and remains controversial is there is funding to replace, uh, uh, drug dogs, right. That were previously trained to hit on marijuana and could be retrained and to increase DREs, although that now is still subject to a Supreme court challenge. And those two items, which remained in the enactment bill, um, were very controversial pieces given the climate. I bet. I bet. The. New Jersey Cannabis Business Association, your general counsel for that organization. Um, yes. Tell me, tell me about it, and uh, w- and what's been going on. I, I I've been seeing different uh, different things, but explain to us what that association is. It's the Chamber of Commerce of Weed, um, and that's I like it. my that's the president's uh, uh, and former president Scott Rudder. This is an organization that really came to be the melting pot. Um, and exactly that. It's a business-to-business type of, of effort. It, it, it's played a large role in both the advocacy piece from a business component side, and they represent everyone from the huge MSOs to the small, you know, minority-owned, women-owned, uh, ex-offender, you know, single practitioner coming into the market. And, and, and an encouragement among their membership, which are both uh, touching the plant, uh, you know, prospective operators to ancillary companies that, you know, 
engineering, accounting, legal, all the like. The, the goal there was to create this melting pot and then to advocate for different things, both from a governmental, uh, from a, a, a legislative side, but also from a regulatory side. And they've been very successful in doing that and been part of this education experience. And previously, Scott Rudder, uh, former Assemblyman Scott Rudder, and former Mayor Scott Rudder, who brought, and by the way, on the Republican side and, 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 and former Army veteran, Scott bought, brought a lot of interesting sort of viewpoints to the table and helped guide this movement, too, from the business side. And now Ed DeVoe, who's taken over as the president, comes from uh, former, uh, you know, state lobbyist side of the world, um, brings a, a level of substance and, 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 um, and, and understanding of the governmental process to this arena, too. So it's been fun working in that environment, but it, it's, uh, it's an ongoing experiment. Have there been any uh, estimates as to the amount of revenue uh, this new law will generate for the state? And secondly, where is the money going? Great questions. A um, long, long time ago, um, there was an estimate made. Uh, this is probably back around 2015, 2016 that we could generate about $300 million annually um, in some context. The state just passed the largest budget ever. I think it was almost $51 billion in, in, uh, in annual uh, revenue. So um, $300 million is not a small amount of change, but it's a drop in the bucket in a, in a $50 billion budget. So it's not life-changing money. It's probably operational money. That money is going to go to some extent to fund the general fund. I mean, all money that comes in for some extent purposes goes into the general fund and then gets reallocated each budget year by the legislature and the governor. But there are some earmarks for these funds. These funds are going to go to the CRC. And one exciting thing, so when the bill passed originally in the spring of 21, there were uh, prohibitions on using any state funds to support a cannabis business because the, 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 the lawmakers did not want any of the state money going to the dirty cannabis experiment, except right. they realized they're creating all these small businesses and the EDA does not have the ability to provide, nor does the CRC, small business help, either through loans or grants. So just last week, the legislature passed a bill to correct that. And the EDA now has been tasked, well, if the governor signs this law, which I think he will, the EDA will be tasked with creating a small business program in conjunction with the CRC um, to allow uh, for some financial support. And another great as asset that's in, in the mix now, and I give a lot of credit to the CRC in this administration, uh, my old friend Melanie Willoughby, who's formerly the president of New Jersey Business Industry Association, she is now what uh, our former Lieutenant Governor Kim Guadano was back in the Christie administration. She is the head of the New Jersey Business Action Center, and that's the one-stop shop for businesses of any type. If you have a problem with the DEP or you have a question about uh, you know, a, a certain governmental process, or you want to check on where your, you know, WBE application is at Treasury. This is a concierge service. It's really a well-kept secret in state government. Melanie's in charge of that operation. And the BAC has also been tasked now with outreach to these new cannabis awardees to help getting them the, the resources that are going to need out of state government to be successful too. So you're starting to see some activity come out of state government now to really energize and support these small businesses that are going to be um, 
awarded out of the CRC. It's exciting. It really is exciting. And there's, like you said, there's just so much that's on the forefront. I'm curious, uh, what what conflicts what conflicts exist um, with the federal government, given the fact that uh, you know the federal government has still made marijuana illegal? Is it is it essentially so, a, a a banking issue? Yeah, I mean, in some of the ways, it's 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 minimal. I mean, you you ignore it and you move on and you go. But in some ways, it's just it's a it's a nightmare. So, for example, banking certainly one of them, um, and and remains a challenge. However, there are certain banks that are working in credit unions now that figure this out, and and banking has become less of a problem. Still not perfect, but less of a problem. I, I think the, the the business costs and access to capital still are though. Um, if I want to open a bakery today, I can go to my bank and get a loan. If I want to open a cannabis dispensary, I can't. And, and, and that's a real challenge and who can get access to capital and then access to this market and who can't. Um, we have a whole variety of things, though, that are still broken at the federal level. I mean, well, by the way, we could do 30 pot. Pro- <laughs> no, I, I, we we could talk all day. I mean, there's so many different yeah, issues. But, it's great. But on this one, um, you know, the idea here that we don't have yet the ability for a doctor to prescribe cannabis, not recommend, prescribe it, and an insurance payer, whether it's on the workers' comp side or on the health side, be able to reimburse for this is insane. And moreover, it's insane that we don't do this at the Medicaid, Medicare, and VA level, where you're seeing these profound benefits in the medical space, but the, the federal government literally has its head in the sand. And the interesting thing now is it's not cannabis lobbyists lobbying for these change. It's the banking lobby. It's the U.S. Chamber. It, it's insurance companies um, lobbying for normalcy at the federal level as it relates, particularly relates to medical cannabis. So I'm hopeful, but I, I will say this to you, I'm a student of politics. I don't think you're going to see any change anytime soon. I think, you know, we're we're headed towards probably a cataclysmic effort on the Democratic side mm-hmm. come the fall. I think you'll see Republican control in both houses post-November. And interestingly, one of the challenges for Democrats sometimes is they try to make the perfect be the enemy of the good. There are good bills on the docket right now that could normalize cannabis for certain uh, efforts right now. The MORE Act is a very good bill. The SAFE Act is a very good bill. These are bills that are going to deal with banking. They're going to deal with some of these insurance issues and help, but they don't do everything perfectly. They don't deal with all the racial and social justice components that some liberal Democrats want. So my prediction to you will be next year in February 23, a Republican Congress will send this Democratic president the first legislation that may get enacted at the federal level related to cannabis normalcy. Okay. Well, we will all uh, await that anxiously. Um, just to wrap up, what in on the state level, what do you think the future holds from a legal perspective? What, what is the... Um, you know, won't hold you to it, but what do you think the timeline looks like for the uh, processing of, you know, class four, five, and six uh, licenses? Um, I, I think 23 is going to be a robust year for that. I think the remainder of 22 is going to be about moving for, moving through applications and continuing to onboard the uh, 20 pre-2018, the 2019 round, and the new folks that are coming in. 
Um, I think in the legal world, I think it's going to continue to explode. I think you're going to see um, mergers and acquisitions among companies. I think you're going to see continued growth in the real estate space here as these companies continue to search for places to open. Um, I, I think you're going to start to see um, deals uh, related to products. I, I joke with one client or uh, one colleague I had, if one client is engaged with a, a, a retailer is engaged with a, a cultivator and the cultivator loses their crop and the retailer then wants to sue for breach as a result of the fact they can't service the, the retail contract, is that enforceable? Because it's cannabis, right? <laughs> this is oh. the product. And these are, mm-hmm. right? These are going to be yeah. very interesting and novel. It's a normal contract claim, but it's cannabis. So this is where all of this is going to take on a very interesting, just talking about the federal laws, how, do, how does a court interpret that? And where are we going to be? And we haven't seen that yet. We haven't really seen a breach of contract claim on a failure to perform on a contract for, you know, supply of a, a legal product under the federal law. Whole new body of law. And, uh, it's great that we have uh, have you as an expert in the field uh, from the legal perspective that's that's been involved, uh, you know, going back a number of years. And just to just to wrap up, how did you how did you get involved in this? What was your background as an attorney prior to, uh, you know, the the you know cannabis being on the forefront of legalization? Uh, I'm a government guy. I mean, I, my career started in 1997. Um, my job was to follow United States Congressman Rob Andrews around with a clipboard and make sure he was on time to events and take notes from the people that we met and get him back in the office. That was a very, very significant role in, in, in my professional life. But I had the pleasure of meeting a constituent that drove down to the Capitol in the United States Capitol with his uh, wife, who was afflicted with MS. And uh, came unannounced into the congressman's office and pled for a meeting. And my boss decided to see him and had no intention of supporting medical cannabis. California had just adopted the law in 96. This is 97, a little after. And I watched this man and this woman who he was wheeling around the Capitol in a gurney because she couldn't walk, change his mind and changed his mind on what he said was a bunch of hippies out in California. This is stupid and we shouldn't be paying attention to it too. Oh my God, these are real people with real lives and this is helping them. And who should, why should I stand in the way? So that was my first education. I, I had the pleasure of serving two speakers in the New Jersey general assembly. I was the executive director of then Joe Roberts, speaker Joe Roberts, and had the pleasure of serving Sheila Oliver when she was speaker in the assembly as her executive director. And I helped to write the state's first medical law in 2009. And um, again, I got to interact with patients who came to us to talk about why the state should do this. And this was common sense. We were, we were denying people life-saving medicine. We were denying jobs and, and a new industry to a state that needed it. We're, we were built on the pharma and, 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 and agriculture economy. Jeez, Jersey was built for this. Mm-hmm. So when I left government and I joined Archer, my job was to create their government affairs program, and I did. And that's what you do, right? You go mm-hmm. into a job and do what you're asked to do. Don't try to do something different. But I, I went to the firm uh, several years after we were successfully established there and said, I'd like to do this. And I, I give my firm a lot of credit. They could have said, I mean, maybe they did. He's out of his mind. But we're <laughs> but, um, And it was a very difficult time. This is like 2014, 2015. And this is not a popular topic. And 
And so my view there was I can lend my experience in the law, my experience in government and in government affairs, um, some communications abilities to kind of try to change hearts and minds. And let's get let's build our economy. Right. This is, you know, about jobs and the economy just as much as anything else is. Let's give people the relief they need. Our medical program was still broken. It wasn't maturing. And uh, and then the other side of this is there's so much opportunity here for young entrepreneurs to jump into a new market. We've seen this in the craft beer industry. And and if Jersey's in any way able to tap into some of that energy to create a craft cannabis industry here, I like where we're going. So that that was the motivation. And one guy just saying, I can do this. I can help. And I, I that's what I tried to do. It sounds like it was a long time coming, but based upon a lot of years of experience. And uh, once again, it takes us back to just the facts that there was uh, when you when you look at at the uh, kind of cost benefit, uh, you were able to address concerns on a case by case basis and on an issue by issue basis. That, that's really it. And, and you know, the, I think the thing that we did really well was we had a very diverse group of people that we welcomed to the table and we kept building the table bigger. Um, but I, but I think the other side of this is you just come at this from a common sense perspective. Um, the, the, the idea here was very simple. Um, we're, 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 this is not a danger to society and we have to prove that to you first. Um, but I'll never forget one of the first press conferences we did, um, Dr. Nathan, who's a phenomenal advocate and a, a, a psychologist that joined our organization and now run, ran this and created Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, said, if you're worried about your children getting access to marijuana, I want to tell you they do have it already. Um, our goal is to put it behind a storefront. Our goal is to make it not cool, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to make this as, you know, it, it's, it, it's something that they have more access to marijuana now than they do alcohol, right? right? So part of this effort was if that's your if that's your issue, respectfully, then you're failing, okay? Um, prohibition has failed on that effort. So if that's the only thing holding you back and kids were a big issue, we're not marketing to kids. And that's been a huge tenet of this regulatory rubric too. Um, when you talk about what you can have and what you can't have in terms of logos, labels, products, nothing close to anything that would come near a minor. Bill, if uh, any of our listeners want to get more information about some of the things that we've discussed, where should they go? And if they want to reach out to you for uh, to potentially retain your services, how do they get a hold of you? Thanks. The, the best thing I can tell you, and I, 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 won't, I can't say it enough, is go to the CRC website. Um, if you're interested on what potentially is available for you as a business go there first before you call any lawyer or any lobbyist or anyone because a lot of it is either going to educate you on what questions you should be asking or they might decide hey this isn't for me i i was mistaken and i'm not going to waste my time um but i i really do think that this state has done an amazing job of really outlining all the different opportunities including employment if you're looking for a job at the crc uh, there's opportunities there to work um for me um, I'm proud to work at Archer Law. Um, we're the fourth largest firm in the state, uh, in, located in, in, in South Jersey, but all throughout the state. And uh, www.archerlaw uh, is where you can find me. Thank you so much for joining us today. I can't thank you enough. And uh, 
boy, you know, a, a year ago, I thought, what's going on in the state of New Jersey? Why, why are they almost asleep at the switch? Why are they taking so long to bring adult use cannabis to market? But when you break it down as to all the moving pieces um, that needed to fit together in order to get all these regulations in place, um, it, it's really impressive that they, that they have done what they have done in the last year, year and a half. That concludes our conversation and this series. Don't forget to subscribe for alerts. You're going to love our upcoming guests. If you're interested in starting a podcast, visit the contact page at njcriminalpodcast.com and send Meg a message. She'd love to discuss your legal podcast, and her producer has experience with podcast launches for businesses of all types. Always a fun conversation.